You're listening to Keeping Connected with the Quran, a series that reminds us of the many beautiful ways the Quran can be a guide, a teacher, and a healer in our lives. Join a rotating cast of insightful hosts and guests featured throughout the week and make the Quran a companion in your day, every day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh everyone. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah, we begin in the name of Allah, all praise and glory be to him. And may his finest peace and blessings be upon the best of his creation and the seal of his revelation, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We welcome everyone back to uh, our fourth uh, and final session, inshallah, this final episode on the ajaz, the inimitability of the Qur'an and the miraculous nature of the Qur'an with my beloved brother, uh, Sheikh Sulaiman Hani who will inshallah get us started today as usual uh, with one more facet of the ajaz and then uh, time permitting, hopefully he doesn't leave any time for me, but I'll, I'll chime in with a little bit myself uh, at the end of the episode. Bismillah, Sheikh Sulaiman. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa jazakum wa khairan, Sheikh. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. There is no doubt whatsoever that this podcast would not be complete if it were not uh, an exchange of both both sides. For all of your input, Sheikh. Okay. I actually want to begin with a disclaimer. Um, and this is based on some feedback I've been hearing recently, as well as over the last 10 years. Anytime I've discussed Ajaz al-Quran or any kind of uh, Islamic study, particularly Quranic sciences uh, and the role of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. So the disclaimer is of two parts. The first is that what we have here during this series, uh, very clearly, it's not an academic presentation. This is the presentation of a of numerous conclusions, and this is a presentation that is highly condensed. And we've said many times we cannot address everything during these uh, short sessions. Allah knows that we would love to speak about this for hours if we had the opportunity, and we can, inshallah, uh, on other platforms and in other uh, you know at other times, inshallah. There's a note here about the concept of objectivity, and I say objectivity, and it can mean so many different things. It's a very loose term. In Western academia, objectivity is seen as a sacred and necessary prerequisite and condition to all research. And many of our professors and many researchers today, uh, Muslims and non-Muslims, they claim that uh, bias is little to non-existent in the secular academy when it comes to these types of researches and discussions. And honestly, this is far from the reality. That bias does not exist. It's far from the reality. And as Muslims, we should not have an inferiority complex when it comes to any type of academia, Western and non-Western, particularly young Muslims who may not have studied the religion traditionally uh, and the methodologies, the usul, the principles from the uh, scholars who are highly proficient and knowledgeable in these methodologies. The reality is that bias is embedded in all types of Orientalist and secular academic approaches to the study of Islam. And this can be proven historically, and this can be uh, analyzed and assessed in many different ways. And it has, alhamdulillah, over the years. And we've touched on this in many different articles as well, especially when it comes to the Quran and Prophet Muhammad wasallam with regards to the seerah. The preconceived notion for many people, so the bias, is there from the beginning. The conclusion that they have is already set in stone. So they start to thereafter look for any type of sign anything that is even weak or fabricated as a source to reaffirm what they already believe. And this is why you find many people with very clear inconsistencies and contradictions because they started out with their conclusion that they reject the Quran. So they will look for anything and everything to warrant their claims. 
And they are very easy to refute. In the end, all of this is packaged in the Western Academy as historical and objective. And I say objective because, again, a very loose term. Do we aim for objectivity? Absolutely. Should we be critiquing as Muslims all of these different sciences historically and objectively? Absolutely. But we also have to be aware that aside from the methodology uh, and aside from the actual evidences, if the individual does not want to consider a differing view or a different opinion, then the, the evidences don't mean much to them. You can have all the clear evidences in the world for anything and everything, but the one who does not want to accept it will not accept it. When it comes to Ajaz al-Quran in particular, uh, Alhamdulillah, this is a topic I've studied and I've discussed for over a decade with many Muslims, uh, with doubts, without doubts, with many non-Muslims, with many of my professors, uh, with many atheists as well. And I've studied this in the East, in Jordan, I've studied in the West at Harvard and other places. And I cannot count the number of times I've heard Muslims in Western academia, old and young, claim that our arguments for Ajaz al-Quran are easy to refute, or these claims are pre-modern. Why are you using the claims that people discussed a thousand years ago? As though the modern arguments are more sound or more advanced. Uh, when we talk about the Ajaz al-Quran claims, and I believe Sheikh Muhammad has a lot of experience in this as well, We've critiqued and we've we've studied for the sake of wanting to know for ourselves that this is true. And you can look at all of the modern and postmodern arguments of non-Muslims, Orientalists, Muslims with an inner complex, and anybody else who studied Ajaz al-Quran and, and started to try to poke holes uh, or to make skeptics of people. And we are very skeptical in our approaches in general as human beings. The truth, the truth is that these modern arguments themselves are the biased ones, and they are very easy to refute. And I say this with full confidence. Do I necessarily agree with every single historical claim of Ijaz found in all of the texts? No, not necessarily. And I objectively studied Ijaz al-Quran from every angle so, so that I know for myself that my iman is built on something intellectually sound. So we are not uh, advertising and facilitating any kind of blind faith here in our discussions on the miraculous nature of the Quran. This is a very sensitive topic and a very foundational, crucial topic for the faith system and faith uh, evidences for many people around the world, two billion Muslims and counting. And the implications are for non-Muslims as well. And I found with all of the different uh, researches in all of the uh, studies in Western academia, that there is nothing at all. There is nothing at all that undermines the foundational belief itself. There are discussions historically on different matters, but it is not something that undermines the conviction of belief in the Quran. So there is no shame whatsoever. And I say this very clearly so that it is not misunderstood. There is no shame whatsoever in our approach amongst Muslim audiences and non-Muslims as well through different Muslim platforms, because this is not a secular academic uh, paper that we are discussing here. When it comes to the confidence and conviction of stating very clearly and very frankly that the only epistemologically sound conclusion is that the Quran cannot be from anyone except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is not based on blind faith, but blindness can certainly prevent a person from seeing all of the clear evidences as truth. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from these types of uh, inferiority complexes that prevent us from proper research. Again, I know this sounded like a very odd tangent or disclaimer to begin with, but it is important as part of the context on the discussion of Ajaz al-Quran and Quranic sciences and any Islamic sciences in general.
Now, we previously discussed uh, different types of Ajaz uh, al-Quran when it comes to the literary miracle. We discussed the Prophet Sallallahu the myth of human authorship. And I'm not going to go in-depth into any one particular facet of Ajaz, but I want to list once again some of the different facets that can be touched upon. The Quran is a book of guidance. Hudan lil muttaqin. It is a book of guidance, so therefore, part of the Ajaz of the Quran is that it came from a source from Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam who could not have had these types of answers and no human being could have and it provided the foundational answers for all of the crucial questions of humanity a book of guidance for people who have a connection to God who are God conscious the questions of why do we exist who is God the names and attributes of God which can philosophically and logically as well be discussed and this is a separate discussion uh, and theologically to see that these are actually the most sound and intuitive understandings of God even historically you look at the Quran and you find the nature of life and death and details of what happens after you die these are very crucial questions for human beings the question of the day of justice and reward these are crucial questions why it can be proven as well when you talk about the psychological impact of knowing that there's a day of justice and that none of us would like to be on the receiving end of injustice and one of the arguments for the afterlife is that we desire at the basic level all human beings some type of justice that we don't want to see people who commit evil to get away with evil evil here defined by uh, the person who is speaking but generally people don't like a person of injustice to quote unquote get away with their injustice and so when we talk about the quran's uh, details when it comes to the afterlife the day of judgment uh, the rewards the universal moral laws you find that this could not have come from prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam or any human being, because in the Quran you find a comprehensive layout, a plan, uh, a boundary, a system that encompasses all types of beliefs and ethics, morality, acts of worship, rituals, inheritance, uh, culture, civilization, history, economics, politics, and law, and other areas of human activity and dealings with God. And all of this fits perfectly and harmoniously and was revealed in a way that cannot be explained by any human being in terms of pointing to a source other than God. And all of this as well provides the psychological tool that allows human beings to cope with this life and the nature of this life as we see it today. And you can, and, and you can see and you can look at a number of uh, psychological researches and find that when people have some belief systems, and we have here examples, belief in a higher purpose, belief in objective uh, morality, uh, belief in life after death, compensation, reward, and so on and so forth, it helps people to cope. Their perspective and perception of God when it comes to suffering helps them to cope. And this is based on a number of secular and religious studies as well. So the Quran provides all of that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not just give us a book of guidance for one small facet of life, but rather it is comprehensive and it is embedded in all human activity. Within the Quran, you find knowledge of the unseen. And this has so many different facets to it. Ikhbar al as some of the scholars of the earliest generation stated. So you have yet undiscovered knowledge. You have predictions of the future, the Roman victory, which could not have been known. You have the prediction that Abu Lahab would die upon Kufr. And this is not a small thing to take into consideration. The fact that many of the uh, elites of Quraysh became Muslim at the conquest of Mecca. Uh, the conquest of Mecca was also a prediction of the Quran. The preservation of the Quran as well. And this is important to consider uh, in light of many discussions, uh, again, in Western academia and other uh, places around the world when it comes to the preservation of the message. This is a promise 
from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and it was clearly fulfilled. When you look at the knowledge of the natural world in the Quran, you find that it could not have come from a human being. The knowledge of the natural world, and I use these uh, this phrase very, very cautiously, we don't, we don't want to follow the trend of the uh, quote-unquote scientific miracles of the Quran that sometimes is actually uh, stretched, sometimes it's not a strong foundation. And this does not uh, imply that science and Quran or science and religion are two different things because religion includes everything and science is an attempt to explain the world around us, but science as a tool is very limited as well. We can say that the Quran explains many things about the world around us. But the Qur'an is not limited to materialism, nor is it limited to empiricism. The Qur'an extends beyond science. There are many things in science today that are believed as facts or theories, and they may be replaced tomorrow or in 10 years or 20 years, particularly when it comes to physics and the universe around us. Uh, you find that in the 1900s and 1800s as well, many different theories uh, were established and discussed in, in different fields of science, and they were replaced within decades. They were replaced in the last few decades as well, and we are still exploring the world around us. However, this does not mean that the Quran, although it is not intended to be a science textbook, does not explain the world around us. It does. And when the Quran explains the world around us, we have to recognize that extends beyond what science is actually able to tell us. So if the Qur'an tells us about the createdness of the universe, we believe this is a fact. If science has not yet caught up, that's fine with science, but science has time to catch up. And we recognize within the Qur'an that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala discusses things that no human being could have known at the time, such as the, uh, the, the concept of embryology and the development of the fetus and so on and so forth. That's not something that humans knew with such detail and accuracy at the time. We find the Qur'an discusses the natural world around us when it comes to the discussion on jinn. So jinn, for those who do not know, an entity that we believe in uh, that is not a human being but also has free will. We cannot see them in their natural form uh, with our eyes. There are believers and disbelievers amongst them. And, and factoring that into the world and believing in jinn as well would actually help many non-Muslims as well understand many other things that are happening in the world today when it comes to different types of psychological disorders. Uh, and this is a, a different discussion, of course, when it comes to uh, marriages and relationships, when it comes to evil in the world, belief in black magic and so on and so forth. May Allah protect us. All of these are things detailed in the Quran. They are about the world around us. And yet science is not able to explain these things. Science is not for everything. If an individual takes scientism or empiricism or materialism as their religion, as their branch of epistemology, they will not be able to explain and answer everything. Meaning what? They will have limitations in their ability to reach God, in their ability to connect with God, in their ability to uh, explain the soul. How does science and philosophy as well explain something like metacognition? The fact that human beings, as far as we are aware, and the jinn as well, but as far as science is aware, human beings are the only uh, creation on this earth that have metacognition. How is this explained when consciousness does not evolve and create itself? And it does not evolve out of matter that does not have consciousness. And uh, so on and so forth. Many other examples like this. The Quran also answers questions about who God is. So the attributes of God, why we were created, why we worship God, all of these are important. The Quran explains the impact or rather has an impact on the hearts on the minds intellectually, this is an intellectual faith, uh, and on the bodies as well when it comes to shifa, when it comes to healing. When it comes to the impact on the hearts, a number of studies in many different universities, uh, and, and this is uh, through many different uh, psychologists and psychotherapists as well who are interested in this area, have found that the Quran does have a positive impact 
uh, on the mental health of those who listen to it, those who study it, those who recite it, and those who reflect on it. And you can uh, search uh, for these studies. They are, uh, alhamdulillah, a dime a dozen. You can find them everywhere. But this is not in and of itself the only proof for Ajaz al-Quran. The Quran is preserved as promised, and you cannot find this with any other scripture claiming to be from God. They were modified and corrupted throughout history. You find that the Quran is preserved. And you find that the Quran came from uh, an authentic, trustworthy, honest source, Prophet Muhammad with an unrivaled Arabic composition, theology. And, and consider this, in 23 years, all of this from one source, from one place, theology and philosophy and history, anthropology, psychology, sociology, literature, physics and biology, the world around us, amongst other fields, from Prophet Muhammad وسلم, an unlettered man in the middle of a desert in Arabia. Consider the impact of the Qur'an on the world as well, on society as well. Now, there are many different facets to Ajaz, and I urge you, those who are interested, to read into it uh, further and to listen to uh, more in-depth lectures if that's what you're looking for as well. But I want you to consider now, for the, the uh, sake of time, I have just a few minutes, inshallah, I want to mention the knowledge of the unseen. Uh, so in Sheikh Muhammad's series on the proofs of prophethood, this was something that was discussed as well, and this is found in the Qur'an too prophecies of the future. If you look at and you study historically and objectively for uh, Western academia, if you study the concept of prophecies throughout history, you find that all it takes to disprove that a person is speaking the truth or has uh, some kind of uh, knowledge from God about the future, all you need to do is see very clearly an evidence that their prophecy was not true. It did not manifest as they claimed. So many people claim the end of the world. E-O-W, for example, end of the world is very common, that the world will end on this year. And you find many evangelicals and others also had such claims and they benefited from their followers. Uh, you find uh, Isaac Newton as well, who believed the world would end in year 2000. You find others who thought the world would end for certain types of uh, reasons and they came up with prophecies and they were not true. And as soon as that time passed, you see what this person's prophecy did not manifest as they claimed, and the timeline uh, or the the, uh, uh, the the time frame that they came up with was not true. Therefore, this person was not speaking from God, if that source can be attributed to the individual. And you look at one of the most famous examples, the uh, the French example of an astronomer, and I have discussed this many times in other places. The conclusion of most of the uh, writings attributed to uh, Nostradamus, um, the conclusion of many French academics and others is simply that they are untrue. And many have been disproven, many have passed in their time, many were actually uh, fabricated and attributed to him, many were mistranslations of the language itself. What are the conditions for a true prophecy? Some of the conditions, the prophecy has to be clear. You cannot say the red will overtake the blue. And then suddenly, a hundred years later, someone said, wow, Suleiman said the red will overtake the blue. And now you see the people who are wearing red, they beat the people with blue. He spoke the truth. He knew this was going to happen. That's too vague. It has to be clear. There has to be a time frame, if applicable. There has to be a, a source that is truthful. So the Prophet Muhammad the voice of the Qur'an is consistent in its accuracy. There has to be consistency in the source. So always, uh, always proven true, not once or twice, on every occasion. Every prophecy in its time frame was proven to be true. The, the prophecy has to be preserved. So the preservation of the Qur'an as well. And the, the most important thing it has to be fulfilled. When you look at the example of the Romans, I have discussed this in depth in other places. I have written 30, 40 pages on it academically as well. And I've looked at the Western and Eastern sources historically. And there is no other way to explain it except that the analysis of the surah 
uh, is that the prophecy is very clear. It is not vague. The time frame is stated. The source, the Prophet ﷺ, who is conveying the Qur'an from God, is truthful. The source, the Prophet ﷺ, is consistent. The prediction is preserved. So this is in the Qur'an. The prediction was found uh, and, and uh, basically revealed uh, in Mecca. And this is also the opinion of many uh, Western and Orientalist discussions on the chronology of the Quranic revelation, such as Theodore Noldecki, that this was revealed in Mecca. A question, was it fulfilled? Was it fulfilled within the time frame stated? The Persians defeated the Romans in 614 and 619. Quraysh mocked the Muslims. I'm summarizing so much content right now. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the beginning verses of Surah Al-Rum in Mecca for the sake of hope, uh, comfort, and optimism for the believers. And you find here the prediction required up to nine years, so no more than 10 years, from years 623 to 628, it must be fulfilled. The Battle of Badr took place in year 624, within this time frame. And multiple victories took place for Heraclius and others from 622 to 628, within the time frame. Which of these battles was the Qur'an referring to? We might not know the specific battle. But all of these battles took place within 622 to 628. These were victories for the Romans. The prophecy was very clear, it was dated, and it was consistent. And you find, again, amongst Western historical uh, sources, and it does not have to be Western, but in this case, many Western sources as well, uh, basically discussing the victory of Heraclius and the destruction of some Zoroastrian temples and others uh, belonging to the Persians, the Sassanid Persians. And basically, this brought back the uh, Romans to victory. And this gave them rise once again. This is one shortened, condensed example. And yes, there are many modern publications and discussions, uh, academic uh, papers published on this topic that need to be uh, discussed, perhaps in a different place at a different time. They will be addressed, inshallah, in the series as well. But in short, in short, we do not base our entire belief system that the Quran is from God on this one discussion. This is one of many things you consider. Ijaz al-Quran cannot be limited to one facet. Ijaz al-Quran, the miraculous nature of the Qur'an, everything must be considered in order for a person to fully understand it is overwhelmingly true. It is overwhelmingly clear that when you consider all of these different things together, you cannot explain the Qur'an as coming from a human being or any group of people or even the devils or anything like this. The Qur'an cannot be uh, explained in terms of its authorship or pointed to in any other direction other than saying this is from God. And if you believe that there's something more sound, if you believe that there's something that proves a greater guidance, then as uh, is mentioned in the Quran, bring something more truthful. We will analyze it. We will assess it. If it is more true, we will follow it as well. We are all searching for truth. Truth with a capital T. Despite living in this postmodern world where there is no truth with a capital T, we say very clearly, the Qur'an, very obviously, very clearly, for the one who is studying sincerely and objectively, is from God. It is from all human beings. It is the final message. We look to it for guidance. We look to it and we study it. It is an intellectual tradition. It speaks to our intellect. It speaks to our emotions. It speaks to uh, our psychological uh, selves. And it speaks to our spiritual guidance. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to see the truth as truth and to follow it and to allow us to see the falsehood as falsehood and to stay away from it. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to fully understand the concept of Ijaz al-Quran so that we can have this very sound, strong foundation that is not shaken by anything else. Allahumma ameen. And Shaykh, I will pass it on to you. Barakallahu feek. Jazakallahu khairan, uh, Shaykh Sulaiman. Ahsanallahu alayka. Allah May Allah further honor you and empower you. Uh, and uh, I think you've teased me out of my topic. <laughs> uh, it was... Uh, 
very tempting and I think I failed. I think I'm going to, inshallah, conclude this program with some highlights on what you've said, actually, that something that really spoke to me. And maybe it has a little bit to do also with the fact that uh, I began my journey of I'jaz or studying I'jaz um, <clears throat> with the scientific miracles, as you pointed out, and I may have alluded to a little bit last week. And then I realized with time that this can't be it. It can't, you can't measure an absolute truth with something that is theory, that's fundamentally flawed. And at the same time, it can't be that the most powerful proof regarding the truth of the Qur'an was only realized 1400 years after the descent of the Qur'an. And when you discuss the issue of lost knowledge, uh, that was a, a new beginning for me. You know, sometimes even we get caught up in the recent discoveries that confirm lost knowledge, like Maurice Bukai and others who speak about you know, archaeological digs in the past 200 years, only when Napoleon uh, invaded uh, Egypt and elsewhere did the science of Egyptology, the study of ancient Egypt, Egyptian civilization rise, and then they deciphered the hieroglyphics, and then we realized that Moses was not like historical fiction and that he actually did have uh, an apprentice or a, a minister named Haman. All these different discussions uh as profound as they are to us because they're fresh and, you know, new things always have a sparkle, uh, sometimes a deceptive sparkle, we need to realize that the moment the Qur'an came down, its accuracy on lost knowledge was already enough. And this is something we may overlook. Like, for example, historians mention the chapter of Surah Yusuf, the chapter on the story of Joseph. Uh, peace and blessings be upon him. Allah, the Most High, says... That in this story are signs for those who ask. Allah says, before we revealed this to you, you were like everyone else. You were among those that were unaware. It was said among the reasons for revelation that a group of the scholars of scripture, the Jews, told them, go ask Muhammad uh, how the children of Israel, the Israelites, ever wound up in Egypt anyway. And uh, they thought this would be, that's it, the killer blow to the message of Muhammad wasallam. And so they come to him and they ask him this question. Hey, if you know about lost nations, you lo know about lost knowledge, perished civilization, how did Moses, uh, how did Joseph wind up in Egypt? And instead of answering them with a one-liner, he recites to them 110 verses. Or switch over to Surah Al-Kahf, for example. They say, ask Muhammad about Dhul Qarnayn, this famous historical conqueror, this mighty conqueror that knowledge about him has pretty much diminished and deteriorated over the years and over the centuries and perhaps millennia. The Qur'an, the way it answers is, I just love this verse. <laughs> the Qur'an says, They ask you about Dhul Qarnayn, I'm going to tell you about Dhul Qarnayn. He informed them of everything they know with surgical accuracy that no one could have known. And then he increased on it. He informed them of what they didn't even know about the Qur'an. And that is why the Qur'an said about the issue of it being enough at the time of the Prophet Allah says, أَوَلَمْ تَكُنْ لَهُمْ آيَةً Is it not sufficient of a sign? أَنْ يَعْلَمَهُ عُلَمَاءُ بَنُوْ إِسْرَائِيلِ is it not enough of a sign that the scholars, the foremost experts of the children of Israel, of previous scriptures, recognize that he is a prophet, sallallahu And even historically, they did not even deny that he was a prophet. When he uh, 
he answers these questions for them when the Prophet ﷺ told them, Will you now testify anni nabi or anani nabi that I am a true prophet from God, I'm an honest prophet? They didn't say no. They said, Nashhadu annaka nabiyun lil ummiyin. They had to find a way out. So they said, You are a prophet. They, they couldn't say no. Uh, and eat their own words because their questions were, if you know this, you're a prophet. And he gets answering and answering and answering on many different occasions. It's not like one narration that I'm reading to you that its reliability can be uh, challenged. They said, we testify that you are a prophet for the illiterate people. And that one statement speaks leaps and bounds about the subject. Number one, they conceded he was a prophet. Number two, they the only way they could avoid not following him and say that you were particular to your people, the people of Arabia, that was their only outlet, their their escape mechanism. And then they called his people of Arabia al-Ummiyin, the illiterate people, because that is where he came from, a place where there is zero access, zero literacy pretty much, uh, that he could not have known any of this. And that is why in the Quran, for example, when Allah Azza wa speaks about details that exist in the previous scriptures, he says, So that the people who receive the book may have yaqeen, may have certainty. Meaning there is more than enough for the, the contemporaries of Muhammad in the 7th century to recognize for certain, istiqan, for certain that he was a true prophet And you know, one thing that I read that was extremely interesting about this issue of lost knowledge, they say, and this is something that was also a new beginning for me, that I, I was very mesmerized and, and rightfully so, though this is not like the science one. Uh, but about the prophecies regarding the future, they are beyond uh, denial because of, like you said, always being consistent, always being specific to the end of it. The predictions, if you will, or the tellings of the past, it can be argued that this is more profound than the tellings of the future. Because even if you were to say uh, something very specific even about the future, not just blue conquers red, or you had red conquer blue, uh, it's an election year. <laughs> <laughs> it might matter. Uh, but th this issue could be fulfilled for the sake of making the predictor sound right. You know, they say a king will be born whose name is who will fight here. Right. Uh, as difficult as that is, it's more imaginable than a lost fact that you can't meddle with. You can't actualize deliberately, choreograph later on. And so the lost past, of course, we wrote in the papers, and I'm sure you've wrote far more extensively, I haven't gotten through or to all of yours yet, about Musa salam's name, the details of his nation, uh, the misuse in other scriptures versus the Quran of the term Fir'aun versus king. So much to be spoken about. Uh, but the only aspect of lost knowledge, uh, or not lost knowledge, uh, predictions, that since I have four, five minutes left that I can end with here, is the the prediction of the preservation of the Qur'an. See, the preservation of the Qur'an, people may not realize this. Even if it was not predicted, it would have been a, uh, a subcategory of i'jaz. Because how, how could you imagine the Qur'an would be preserved and not corrupted when it came, where it came, when it came, disseminated the way it was disseminated? It's unimaginable. It's very difficult to imagine if we want to not be hyperbolic. And Jazakallah Khair for the intro. I think the important intro that you started with today about us saying this in verbal form, we are, of course, going to be trying to condense. And so we may not choose the most appropriate words sometimes. And that's why uh, an objective person would not hold us to the letter of our spoken words, especially when they have the written forms too. 
be more uh, uh, analytical with and to be more uh, measuring of, to gauge them with, with greater uh, confidence, inshallah. So imagine that, that the unlikelihood of a book that was taught, not in a sit-down, it's not a line or two, it's a book that was taught to people over 23 years. This book was taught in, uh, in, in, in segments. No one person uh, would receive it at once. It was documented, no, primarily committed to memory, documented here and there on disjointed letters and fragments of bones and otherwise. Imagine someone would come to the Prophet wasallam, or not even him, sometimes one of his companions during his life and hear some Qur'an from them and go back to their hometowns and never meet the Prophet wasallam, or the companions ever again, teaches it to his family, teaches it to his children, teaches it to his clan's folk, and then it continues independent chains of transmission autonomously that way. And then 1400 years later, you have 1.8 billion Muslims reciting the same Qur'an with zero incompatibility, even with the variant texts that have a very perfectly understandable explanation, not texts meaning different words, for those that are not going to follow up and check on this, uh, but variation in pronunciation at times, variations in very subtle variations. Even with that, the compatibility is never compromised. So zero incompatibility between 1.8 billion Muslims. How do you do that? Like, even if you did not prophesize, that would be a separate part of the Ijaz, that it would happen, who would ever think it could happen? This is clearly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who did tell us we will guard this book from corruption. Clearly, even if he didn't tell us he was going to, he is the one that could have done this because no one else could have done this. That's why Allah azza wa jal even said, بَلْ هُوَ آيَاتٌ بَيِّنَاتٌ فِي صُدُورِ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْعِلْمِ They are clear verses in the chests, in the hearts of those that have been granted the sacred knowledge. Allah carved it into the hearts of people in a way, inscribed it into our souls, the souls of those who carry the sacred knowledge, those that memorize it uh, until the end of time. And that's another aspect. Like if someone wants to come speak about the i'jaz of the Qur'an even being preserved as a manuscript, that is also very hard to believe considering the very low literacy rates, considering all things uh, considered it not being centralized. And the centralization may have been argued by some that Uthman or Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, may Allah be pleased with them. They Maybe they purged the, the variant copies uh, or the conflicting copies very early. Uh, sure, fine, I can understand why you say that considering the, the other scriptures of other texts, the Bible, for example, was locked in a vault, basically, only for the liturgy uh, for a thousand years. And William Tyndale, William Tyndale when he translated into English, he was burned at the stake for it. But the idea is Uthman and Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhum, let us imagine that there was foul play here. We would have known because the memorization track is the primary track by which his Quran was preserved. And then it moves on now. I don't have time to speak about the impact on the hearts. Uh, but I did a small, uh, in this just one minute, uh, amateur research as I was going through Ajaz, just to, for my own betterment uh, in understanding about the commitment of people to the Qur'an as opposed to any other book. And we, I found that the number one book in the past 50 years in terms of sale that sold four times as much as second and third place bestsellers was the Bible. And so the Bible, uh, it sold 
over 4 billion copies. And second place was the Quotes of Mao Zedong, and third was the, the, the Harry Potter series. Those two sold uh, about 800 or 900 million copies, if I'm not mistaken. As compared to the Bible, which by itself, that's pretty impressive, right? Four billion copies, it dusts second and third place. But the Quran is just in a league of its own. Like, tell me of a book that 10 people on earth memorize cover to cover, as Sheikh Muhammad Faqih usually tells us, right? This Quran is memorized by millions of people, cover to cover, the majority of which don't speak Arabic as their native tongue or Arabic at all besides the Quran, in the exact same way, using the Uthmanic Codex, uh, using the, the very f finite, very specific uh, science of Tajweed, a particular code, for, uh, code of rules for reciting the Quran. Who could have done all of this? And this is just, as you said, the appreciation of the Qur'an, the preservation of the Qur'an, so that you can dig into all of the other aspects of Ijaz with confidence that this is the book that Muhammad wasallam received. And so I, I uh, concur and echo your, your, your beautiful dua. May Allah allow us to not just hear about and not just understand, but experience the inimitability, the matchless nature, uh, the distinction of this book as the word that conquered all words and the statement that silenced uh, every statement in human history and brought out of the world the best of it. And inshallah, we'll do once again. May Allah bring us back to his book and bring the world back to his book uh, as it once was. Allahumma amin. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh Suleyman. Please close us out if you can. Barakallah feekum. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from you and us and all of those who are listening. Uh, I'm more than certain for those who are interested in discussing point by point, any facet of the Irajaz. Uh, I, I know I would be more than interested. I'm sure Sheikh Muhammad will also be interested in uh, discussing these matters uh, or sharing resources when people ask. Uh, but don't stop here. For those who are interested, don't stop here. Continue researching, experiencing, reciting, reflecting on the Qur'an. It is for a people who reflect. It is for a people of intellect. It is for a people uh, of God consciousness. It is for people who seek something greater. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to live to our greatest purpose, uh, to guide us and guide others through us, and to make us a reason for others to be guided. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive us for all of our shortcomings. Okay. If I have made any mistakes in this uh, podcast series, and I, I speak for Sheikh Muhammad as well, I'm sure. If we made any mistakes uh, whatsoever, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive us and to uh, allow us to rectify that for the future. If we have made any mistakes, it is further a proof of the divine origins of the Qur'an that it was revealed and conveyed on the spot with no errors, no room for proofreading or any type of uh, retracting of the Qur'an and its verses. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to see that as a proof of Ajaz al-Qur'an as well. Barakallahu feekum. Continue, uh, uh, inshallah, streaming and following the other series by Yaqeen Institute. And we will see you, inshallah, on other platforms and other places. Bismillah. Barakallahu feekum. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This podcast was brought to you by Yaqeen Institute for Islamic Research, dismantling doubts and nurturing conviction, one truth at a time. Tune in tomorrow for the next episode on Quranic Reflections and subscribe to this series. If you like this episode, you'll love our other content. Visit yaqeeninstitute.org or download our app from the App Store. Until next time, this has been Keeping...